Right now, though, we're going to talk a little bit about restaurants. We've been talking about them a lot throughout this pandemic, and we wanted to get a better idea on how things are looking as we head into the more festive season. Ian Tostenson is with us, president and CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. Ian, thanks so much for being with us again. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me on. I wanted to talk to you because we we saw some information put out earlier today, and this was from the group Restaurants Canada. It was a bit of doom and gloom talking about the future of restaurants. But I know here in BC, there is positivity and there is reason to be optimistic. So how are you feeling going into what is normally a very busy time for restaurants? I think we're feeling in British Columbia. Restaurants Canada do a great job, but they do speak for Canada. And so you know, their their message is much more sort of across the board. In British Columbia, um, I mean, I'm an optimist, but, you know, we're feeling pretty good. You know, the, some of the issues that we're having, in fact, in fact, are because things are going so well. A couple of restaurant operators told me in this morning, actually, that, you know, that what the issue they're having right now is not being able to fulfill the demand for restaurant seats, uh, you know, either for, you know, holiday celebrations because they don't have enough staff. So they're, you know, they're sort of saying, if we're at 90%, we'd like to be at 100%, but we just don't have the staff. And so that's that's causing them some frustration. But if we look about from where we came from a year ago, um, boy, we're talking about, you know, shutting down and not being open. And then we had, you know, New Year's Eve. So we've come a long way. And we've got a long way to go. I mean, our Restaurants Canada are, are not wrong about that. I mean, no one is flush with cash and, and out of the woods yet, but we're headed in the right direction. And and I really think it's it really changed when the vaccination passport program came in and people have the confidence that they can go into a restaurant. And as you and I have talked before, you know that everybody that's dining in there has been vaccinated and it's a real good sense of safe. And, and that's working well for us. Are you still hearing from people at all with concerns about the fact that, like you say, everybody who's dining there is vaccinated, but are people still raising any concerns about the fact that you don't know if the staff are or not? No, and I think the the real reason is, and I think we've been able to message this, is that, you know, uh, a, a person in a restaurant, one of two things will happen. They They can't live their life the way they want to live. They can't even eat in the restaurant if they're not vaccinated. So, there's a high motivation for them to do that or go out to shows or go out and, and they're very social. So that's number one. And number two is the reality is there's a lot of pressure. We've had, you know, restaurants that I've talked to where they go, you know, out of our 50 staff, you know, we've got one or two and they're on the margin and eventually the sort of the pressure from their peer pressure will result in one of two things. Either, you know, the staff member will get vaccinated or they decide to leave the industry. No one wants to work in that pressure. So when we say that, you know, our our staff, you know, 99% plus uh, that are vaccinated. You know, if you look at it from their perspective as well, too, uh, they don't want to be hanging out in a restaurant with a bunch of unvaccinated people or putting themselves at risk. And so, it, it, you know, naturally it's sort of, I mean, it would have been better preference for us to vaccinate everybody, but I think the system itself worked to our advantage. And so we're good at that. And you mentioned, too, uh, with restaurants across the country, because even comparing what things looked like when B.C. restaurants were getting back, even at slower, uh, lower capacity and still a lot of obstacles. I mean, they were back and I think quite the envy of, say, restaurant operators in Ontario, where they were shut down for the better part, if not more than a year. And that was to everything, not just kind of lower capacity. So does that has the way it was managed, I guess, in B.C., is that what has helped? 
helped lead to this place where things aren't as dire in this province? Yeah, I think the comparison, if you look at, you know, Alberta, we're a bit arrogant and then suddenly they had to reverse course. Ontario, you're right. Uh, they were closed a lot longer than we were, and it was much more severe. They were entirely closed, where we, you know, we always maintained uh, pretty much patios. I, I think the government uh, in British Columbia and industry and beast people in BC have done a great job. I mean, there's been some times when we, you know, when when masks came in and when you know va- vaccination passports. But you know, we talked to government last week, and they said the incidences that they you know we initially had of complaints and, and business not complying all that kind of stuff have basically gone to zero i mean it's you know there's still a few things and the government's still being very uh, diligent about making sure that our businesses are doing the right thing but it's it's going very smooth right now so it was initial growing pains but bc i believe um is probably uh, the poster child, uh, this is a bit broad maybe, but all of North America, I think BC did the best in terms of its restaurant industry. As far as I can see, we were closed a fewer number of days. And I know that the program that collectively we put together when we were initially closed back in 2020, um, that was viewed in you know New Zealand and, and Australia as a way to do it. So I think that has been a model, and I think it's it's uh, it's a model for us for the future if we ever get ourselves in the situation again. I'm really proud. The, the The business owners are exhausted; they're really short in staff. Um, but you know, the, the good thing is, is we got people that wanting to come out and dine right now. And if you have revenue in business, that's a lot easier than not having anybody going out, which was the case in BC at some points during the last eighteen or twenty months. And are you concerned at all, or I would imagine talking with health officials, and this was something that was brought up by Restaurants Canada as well, about the, the Omicron variant, what we know, but I suppose also what we don't know at this point. I don't, <laughs> I don't like to sort of be anti or against Restaurants Canada, but we don't see that. I mean, I just, I just talked to my kid brother. He's a pharmacist up in the Okanagan. Uh, he's now doing one of the only pharmacies that are doing vaccinations, which is kind of cool. And I asked him the question. I said, what are you seeing? He said, no. He said, what they're seeing is that people's frustration uh, is about travel, but it's certainly not with uh, the new variant. You know, people that are vaccinated and wearing their masks, it's not even a concern. It's just, it's, and, and the more that we are hearing is that this particular variant may not be, uh, the one we have to focus on is, is, is not this variant. It's the original variant that we're dealing with. And I think Dr. Uh, Henry has made that quite clear again. So, no, we're not seeing that in B.C. I mean, again, Restaurants Canada may be seeing that in other parts of Canada, but we're not seeing it here. And I suspect, again, it's just good management and just good, prudent, being conservative in British Columbia to get us through this next stage. But, I no, we're not, we're not seeing it. We're not seeing people pulling away from restaurants. Um, in fact, I am hearing that people don't want to travel because they've got to go through a whole bunch of the different things right now, which will probably be good for us. They'll stay home and go to restaurants, maybe. <laughs> and I guess that could lead to another issue of if people have put off making those reservations for the holidays or they're still trying to plan special outings, they might not be able to get one. Yeah, so, I mean, I don't usually try to, you know, but I think they really should make the reservation. Um, I, I have had a couple, I had a golf course yesterday call me and said that they were getting a little bit frustrated because people said, well, we don't know we want to make a reservation yet because maybe it's going to get cancelled. And I said, we're not going to get canceled. I mean, this time last year, we were having conversations with the government about we may have to really mute the whole, you know, Christmas and New Year's. 
we're not having that right now. I mean, everybody's feeling really confident about that. So people should find a restaurant. If it's not their perfect restaurant, you know, go to the next restaurant on their list. There's lots of local restaurants that would love to uh, to show their stuff and, and to put on a, a wonderful evening. Just go out and enjoy yourself. We all deserve that. It's been a long, long 20 months. Right. And uh, there's a lot of restaurants that love to provide that hospitality. All right. Ian, thanks so much. I'm sure we'll talk to you again before the end of the year. But thanks so much for joining us again today. Thanks, Joe. Anytime. Amazing music. Absolutely amazing. But that is also leading us into our next topic. We were just chatting with Ian Tostenson about what restaurants are looking like right now. So what about the larger events? Well, CKNW producer Ben Dooley has been heading out to some of those and he's joining us on the line now. Hey, Ben. Hey, thanks for having me. You were at what I know a lot of people are describing as a very exciting game last night. Yeah, I uh, got some some uh, very cheap tickets uh, to the uh, Canucks game last night, and I was uh, able to get out, and it was probably the most exciting Canucks game that I have seen in, gosh, at least five years. Wow, that's uh, so the, the game itself exciting. What was it like being in the stands and being in such a large group? I, I mean, the, the atmosphere uh, was, was lively and, and great, and it, was, and it was fun. And I know in, in, we're, we're talking about this in terms of, of you know, uh, COVID and, and safety, and that, uh, for the most part, uh, I felt was, was pretty good. You know, you, you do have your, your odd person who, you know, isn't uh, following the rules to the, the strictest uh, of, uh, of rules, but, uh, but for the most part, people are, are doing the right thing they're respecting the rules. They're, you know, keeping their distance. And, and so for the, for the most part, I, I feel like it's, uh, it's uh, pretty safe. What was it like as far as masks? Because that's still something that you see, whether it's on transit or in smaller gatherings, people who they must know they're not wearing the masks correctly if it's not covering your nose. But what did you find as far as I would think at an event where you could also have food and drink, there might be a bit of a, a relaxing of those rules. Yeah, I would say that um, for the most part, probably uh, seventy to eighty percent were were masked fully at at basically all times. You know, the the woman that, that I was uh, sitting next to, we were shoulder to shoulder basically, uh, but she was wearing an an, an N95 mask uh, the the whole time, so I didn't have to to feel at all concerned about uh, about you know her. her not following the rules, even though we were, you know, really close together. And was it like that at the event itself? I, I imagine you're you're going to be close to people when you're sitting in the seats, but was it like that as well, kind of getting to your seats or when you were leaving and everybody was leaving all at once? I, I, I always uh, get there early, so getting there uh, wasn't wasn't too bad, and, and it, it was spread out. Getting out, uh, I mean, the when you you have uh, eighteen thousand people uh, trying trying to leave, it can it can get a bit crowded uh, for sure. But you know, people kept their masks on and and stuff like that. So I wasn't I wasn't too too concerned about it. 
And I know this this is one of several games. Do you, are people, do you think, or are you getting the impression that people are getting kind of, I suppose, getting the hang of what it is like to be at a, a large scale event like this now? And it's becoming more, I mean, showing the certificate, showing your ID, getting in, is it becoming easier? Oh, oh yeah, definitely. I would say that uh, people are, you know, just happy to to be out enjoying a good time and and they're willing to do uh you know whatever it takes uh to to be a part of that whether that's you know getting vaccinated wearing a mask uh all the, all that sort of stuff i think people are are just happy to be able to to go out and have some fun at a hockey game or, or a soccer game or, or what have you. And I, I think that's, that's what it's all about. <laughs> Indeed. You mentioned, too, this was the most exciting in the past few years. Um, this Here's a technical question. Is it possible that it wasn't the fact that there was a new coach? It was just a fluke that they won? I, I mean, yes, that is certainly a possibility. We'll have to see if uh, they, they can repeat the performance uh, tomorrow night when they when they take on the rival uh, Boston Bruins. Uh, so we'll we'll have to see uh, if they can continue this for for more than one game. But it's certainly off to a good start. And I understand a new chant was born last night. Yeah. So uh, they the the fans uh, created uh, a new chant off off the song that goes. Uh, Whoop, there it is. They started chanting, uh, Bruce, there it is, off of the new coach. Uh, his name is Bruce Boudreaux. And so that, that was, uh, was pretty funny uh, how that uh, organically uh, started in the game. And I, I have a feeling that uh, if, if the Canucks keep winning, it will uh, become, become a thing around uh, Canucks Nation. Oh, I think you might be right on that for sure. Well, glad to hear it was all very organized and and feeling safe for people. Ben, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being with us on this Tuesday afternoon. Well, this story is disturbing to say the least. It all started with a fight over a SkyTrain seat and it ended with a senior citizen being stabbed multiple times. Joining me now is Constable Mike Yake, Metro Vancouver Transit Police spokesperson. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, Can you tell us a bit how this unfolded or how this all started? Yeah, so uh, last Saturday, uh, December 4th, just uh, shortly after 1 p.m., a a man got on an eastbound SkyTrain at Scott Road Station. And as he attempted to sit down, he accidentally bumped uh, into another man who was was about to sit in the same seat. Uh, The victim ignored the accidental bump, and he moved to a different part of the train. Uh, Moments later, the, uh, the suspect then allegedly approached the victim, got close to his face, and demanded an apology. Uh, the victim pushed the suspect away and uh, he- held him into a nearby seat with hopes that uh, help would arrive at the next stop. At that point, he felt a sharp pain in his side. When the victim looked down, he saw that the suspect allegedly uh, had a knife in his hand. Now, uh, when the SkyTrain uh, arrived at the next stop over, which is Gateway SkyTrain Station, the suspect ran off the train and out of the station. The victim uh, remained on the train and he was uh, met at the following stop, which is Surrey Central Station, by SkyTrain staff and uh, officers with the Metro Vancouver Transit Police. Shortly after, the victim uh, was taken to the hospital with uh, multiple stab wounds. Um, Metro Vancouver Transit Police and Surrey RCMP uh, conducted extensive patrols around the area. 
but unfortunately we were unable to locate the suspect. Hmm. And I know you've put out a picture from the camera in hopes of somebody recognizing this person, but at this point, have there been any tips coming in? So at this point, we, we haven't identified the suspect, and that's why it's, you know, we're, we're appealing to the public for their help. You know, we want, we want everyone to take a look at these photos, and you know, if they recognize this man, to you know, please call our tip line as soon as possible. Um, it's extremely important that we find this man as quickly as, as possible before he has the opportunity to, to hurt someone else. Um, and our, sorry, our, our tip line number is 604-516-7419. And can people also text the number that you would text, or is that only for when something's actually happening? No, absolutely. And, and they can also text our, our text service at 877-7777. All right. And just to, to clarify, uh, when you're talking about the victim and the suspect, so it was the, the victim of the stabbing who who unknowingly or, or bumped into somebody but didn't think that much of it and then, then was basically going on about his day when the, the suspect decided that wasn't good enough and went after him? Yes, that's correct, yeah. Uh, what does this say, the, the level of violence here over a bump, an accidental bump over a seat on the SkyTrain? Oh, the, uh, the, the details you know, surrounding this attack are, you know, they're, they're absolutely disturbing. Uh, the level of violence that this man used over something as ridiculous as being accidentally bumped into is, is shocking. And it's, you know, it's, it's something that, you know, we just do not see on our transit system. And what about witnesses? Were there other people on the train at the time? So we do believe that there were other people on the train, and that's why we want to reach out to witnesses that if anybody witnessed you know, this situation or you know, recognizes the man in this photo from you know, being on the train, is that we want witnesses to come forward too, and hopefully they can help us uh, piece together this puzzle. And when somebody's on a SkyTrain in that scenario, uh, is it different than, say, Canada Line or buses or as far as the, the silent alarms? Would there have been a way for people to who I, I would imagine would have also been frightened by this? I mean, here's a man with a weapon who's using it. Would there be a way for people to to silently and quietly alert officials, uh, call for help? So in a situation like this is, you know, I don't want to go into a specific story about this situation, but like, because every situation is different, but in an emergency, we want people to always fall back on calling 911. That's extremely important. Um, Other thing is that we want people to save our text message service uh, in their cell phones. If they're using public transit, they should have the number 877777 saved into into their cell phones. It's a fantastic service that lets passengers discreetly text our dispatchers in real time. There's no delay. It's, it's basically exactly like how you would text your friend back and forth. Right. Okay. Uh, do you know then at this point, or do you know, did anybody call Transit Police or call 911 while this was happening? Um, at this point, I, I'm, I'm unsure if anyone did call 911 um, while this incident was happening. happening. Uh, we do believe that there were other witnesses on the train, though. Right, because that's a bit concerning too, isn't it? That while this is unfolding in front of people, and again, not suggesting that people should get involved or put themselves in any danger, but people on trains are on their phones all the time. And it's not as though somebody, the suspect in this case, would know that somebody was calling 911 or would know that they were texting for help. 
Yeah, and, and, and that's exactly it, is we don't want people to put themselves in, in harm's way. And that's why we you know, always encourage someone when, when a situation uh, you know, like this unfolds or a very, a very serious situation, we want people to always call 911 or, or discreetly text our, our dispatchers. Uh, do you have any idea if this person, uh, because the image is pretty clear and I know people can see it on our website as well. Do you have any idea if this person is potentially linked to any other assaults on transit? At this point, we, we just don't know. And, and, you know, we, we don't have the identity of this man and that's why we're reaching out to the public because we, we need their help in, in identifying this man. And what about uh, the victim? I understand not life-threatening injuries, but serious injuries. Do you know the condition of the man who was stabbed? Yeah, so as you can imagine, a a situation like this would uh, traumatize anyone. Our investigators actually spoke with the victim earlier today, and given how serious this situation was, um, he appears to be in good spirits, and really that's all we can ask for at this point. And, and just going back to kind of how this unfolded, and again, in no way suggesting that this was the victim's fault, but his response when, when the suspect came and approached him and confronted him, when, when the victim, the man who, was, who ended up being stabbed, uh, when you talk about the fact he, he pushed the suspect into a nearby seat and then he tried to hold him down waiting for help, uh, what do you say to that action in that you might, you might feel like that's the best thing to do in the moment, but is that the best thing? to do yeah we don't want we don't recommend that passengers you know put themselves in harm's way um again we understand that every situation is different and everybody has you know different abilities but we recommend that people don't put them put uh, themselves in harm's way yeah, because I mean, and, and also, and again, not the victim's fault at all, but you don't know if somebody is carrying a knife or carrying any other kind of weapon. And like in this case, it led to him uh, being stabbed several times. Absolutely. And that's why we, we really encourage people to use our text message service. The great thing about it is if you're on transit and you feel you know, something suspicious, you feel unsafe, your spidey senses are going off, we, we want you to text us. And that way we can have officers uh, you know, attend the, the station and you know, make sure you're okay and make sure everything um, you know, around the train is, is fine. And so is that message then it's better to be overly cautious than to ignore something that might potentially be dangerous? Absolutely. Yeah, we we want everyone to call us if you if if yeah, if you feel unsafe or if your spidey senses are going off. That's a fantastic thing about our text message service. All right. Well, we hope that the man who was stabbed makes a full recovery and hopefully somebody will recognize the suspect's picture as it is out there for people. Constable Yake, thanks so much for joining us to talk more about this very disturbing story. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks for being with us. Just a reminder, in about 25 minutes, we are going to get the update, the Tuesday afternoon update on COVID-19 and Omicron and what is happening with that in this province. Dr. Bonnie Henry and Health Minister Adrian Dix will be addressing the province and we are going to bring that to you live right here on the program. We're going to talk a little bit more as well about the federal wage subsidy. We haven't talked about this as much as 
because it hasn't been top of the news. It certainly was when it was brought in as one of the many measures to help businesses, to help people, to help Canadians when the pandemic hit and so many businesses were shut down. Well, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation has released some new numbers today, taking a look at which political parties took money through the Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy and how much money the political parties took. Joining me now is Chris Sims, the BC Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Chris, great to have you back on the show. Thanks for having us. Can you tell us a bit, what are these numbers showing us about the wage subsidy and the political parties? Okay, so this is our federal team led by our federal director, Franco Terrazano, in Ottawa. And all they did was go look at the financial statements that are, by law, uh, required to be posted. And they're typically posted by things like Elections BC, Elections Canada, that sort of thing, for political parties. And what the political parties do is basically say, this is where we got our money in the last quarter, in the last year, etc., and what they found, taking a look at those numbers, are, is that more than $3 million was taken from the Canada Emergency Wage Benefit, which was basically one of the COVID measures that was rushed in by the federal government. Typically for, you know, oh my goodness, you know, my hair salon has been closed by the state, by the government. I can no longer take in clients. I can't pay my hairdressers. Here's what this is for. Or... My work has been drastically scaled back because of COVID measures. Here's some extra money from the government. That's what that was supposed to be for. Turns out political parties were taking some of this money from this wage fund, more than $3 million in taxpayers' money, and using it themselves. And I need to be clear, some folks don't realize there's a difference. So we have political parties at the provincial and federal level. They have headquarters. They have offices, they have bosses, they have administrators, they have secretaries, they have staff. That's different than the political staff who work on, say, Parliament Hill or the legislature in Victoria. Those staff, the ones at the legislatures, that's not who we're talking about. It was the political parties themselves as entities that were using these wage subsidies to, we don't know, pay their employees, do whatever with it. But yeah, more than $3 million dollars. Hmm. I seem to recall when this first came out, when the subsidy was put into place and it came out that there was, and I don't remember which one it was, but there was one political party that it was found out that they had taken the subsidy. And then I think it it kind of, it came out that that wasn't a one-off, that the political parties, but there was some justification given in that uh, them them saying, well, we have employees just like anybody else and these employees aren't working or for whatever reason need this subsidy. There was some justification. Have you seen any or did the federal team see any more details as to what the money was used for? Well, they can try to justify it all they want. That doesn't mean that it's right. Uh, The vast majority of staffers who work for a political party can work from home. It's something that you work from home, your home office, you can use it, you can do it on your laptop. So these are folks who answer phone calls, uh, they do uh, data banking, they will create the next attack ad, uh, they maintain their lists, they're the ones that drum up donations. The vast majority of that work can be done from home. Uh, We're privileged to work in a very similar sort of way. We can work from home. So 
for folks who can't work from home and who don't have employees who could work from home, that's what the wage subsidy was for. It was for an emergency in order to keep people afloat. And you're right, this did come out a little while ago, and various political parties said, oh, well, you know, that might have been a mistake, we'll pay it back. We don't have evidence that that has been paid back. In fact, what's interesting is based on the current data, based on the current data, the only federal political party that's represented in the House of Commons that did not take this money was the Bloc Québécois. Hmm. Sorry, go ahead. That's what I said, too, when I saw that. It was, hmm, like, that's really interesting. It wasn't quite surprising. And as far as the provincial level goes, as again, as far as we can tell, uh, it looks like the B.C. Liberals took more than $300,000 from this from this pool. And as far as the current data goes, that seems to be the highest of any provincial political party. So they even beat out Jason Kenney's UCP for taking taxpayers' money and using it for their political party. And again, trying to figure out, I'm not, not saying it's justified or that I'm justified, no, but trying okay. to, to figure out what, where the reasoning might be. If you're talking about a party that depends on donations, would they have been able to argue the same or show the same loss in revenues simply because donations were down because we were in a pandemic? Could they have used that number saying, well, this is showing a 40% or a 50% dip in our revenues, therefore we qualify for this? They could try to make that argument, but they should try to make that argument to taxpayers and see if taxpayers agree. Because to be clear, political parties already take a ton of money from taxpayers, especially here in British Columbia. We've got the political welfare system of the per vote uh, subsidy that goes through and taxpayers foot the bill for half of their campaign expenses after a provincial vote. It's to the tune of about $30 million so far. And when you make a donation to a political party, you get a way bigger tax credit than you do to, say, a charity. So if you donate, say, 100 bucks to the Terry Fox Foundation, bless your heart, you'll get a tax credit of around $20 back. If you donate 100 bucks to, you know, the BC Yellow Political Party, Inc., you'll get about $80 back for your tax credit. So they're not hurting for cash when it comes to taxpayers' money. And for them to dip into this emergency, oh my goodness, it's you know hitting our shores COVID fund, uh, we don't think is ethical and we want them to pay it back. And ethical is really one of the key words there, isn't it? Because this also came up or similar stories came out of corporations that were taking the federal money, that were taking the bailout money for the pandemic, using it to pay executives, using it not really for the things it was intended. Uh, to me, that that pointed more to a crack in the system. And I realize it was done quickly, but mm-hmm. they didn't break the law. Was it ethical? Eh, maybe not. But they didn't break any laws doing this. So maybe it was the system in which you could access this money that's broken. Yes, exactly. And they're taking advantage of the system, which is why we're calling them out on it. Because guess who makes the system? Them. (laughs) (laughs) They're the law writers. They're the legislators. And they should, frankly, know better to not do things like this. And so, sure, is it technically within the rules? Looks to be. Does that mean that it's right or okay or ethical? Uh, We don't think so. And so, again, if they want to make that argument, hey, Mr. Taxpayer and Mrs. Taxpayer, uh, we're really hard up for donations right now because, you know, COVID hit and stuff. 
Um, could we take some of your money in order to, you know, supplement that? They should make that case, but they're not. No, and I think they are held, or at least I would hope that they're held to a bit of a different standard, because like you say, they're the ones making the rules. And if we have corporations or companies that are looking at ways to kind of game the rules mm-hmm. without without breaking them, okay, fine, it's still not great, but... It, it is different, I think, when, when that happens as compared to, like you say, when the very people who are making the rules then have behavior or exhibit behavior that is questionable. Yes, exactly. If uh, you're the head of a big corporation and you're taking this money and giving it to your executives, that's still wrong and that's unethical and we think that stinks. But it's kind of on us, right, because we're the ones through our legislators that we elect parliament into the legislature We're the ones that are supposed to be holding those politicians to account and making sure that they're reading the fine print on these agreements and crossing the T's and dotting the I's. So a little bit that's on us. You know, we should have done our due diligence or at least made sure our politicians did that and made sure that we weren't being taken advantage of. But in this case, it's the actual politicians who are writing the rules for the system that are now taking advantage of it. It must get, I don't know if tiresome is the right word, but you mentioned the vote subsidy, which we had a a premier who said, nope, we're never going to bring this in here. We've had other politicians who have told us it's only going to be temporary, only to find out, shocker, it wasn't only temporary. Uh, Now seeing this, that has got to be tiring to see this going on and on and on. It's really frustrating. And I think part of it is, again, sorry to be cynical, but it really makes you depressed. Part of it is because people are so worried and busy and strapped for time and mental energy right now that they don't have the energy to say, hey, wait a minute. Why is my MLA taking my tax money? Why are you using this for an attack ad or a lawn sign? This is not right. They don't have the time to make that phone call, to send that email, to hold politicians to account over what would seemingly be seen as the quote-unquote little stuff. And so, frankly, they're getting away with it. They're taking advantage of it because they know that people don't have the time and effort to put into this. But I'm speaking to your listeners right now. If you do, if you if you manage to have a little bit of time on your hands and you think this is wrong, please email your politician. We don't care which stripe it is. Could be the flying monkey party, whatever. Email them, phone them, say, you know what? I'm watching you and I think this is unethical and I disapprove. Because if you think about all that money, say the $30 million you're taking from the per vote subsidy and the 50% uh, buyback for election expenses, I'd crunch the numbers. That could employ thousands of full-time paramedics for like 10 years. But we're giving it to politicians for attack ads. It's, it's not right. All right, Chris, we will leave it there. But thanks so much once again for coming on the program. Thank you for covering this. We really appreciate it.